All right, that's all I have at this time. I'm going to invite you guys to stand with me. Grab your Bibles. Uh, there may be a pew Bible in front of you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd encourage you to uh, use that. And if you don't have a Bible, you, we would even uh, give that to you today as a gift from us. But we are going to be in Genesis chapter 13. In Genesis chapter 13 and 14 is the, pest, is the section that we are going to cover this morning. And I'm not going to read all of chapter 14. I'm just going to read uh, chapter 13 for sake of time and because I don't want to try to pronounce a lot of uh, ancient Canaanite names in front of you all. And so we're going to stick with chapter 13 for now, but we will be covering both chapters 13 and 14 over the course of the sermon today. So join me as we look and give attention to God's Word. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. To the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, "'Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward.' For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our God, we look to you this morning. We do declare and recognize you as holy, 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 the one who is mighty, the one who could crush us in an instant as rebels before you, and yet you are also merciful to us. And we see this throughout this beginning book, this book of Genesis, throughout the life of Abraham, we see this one who you have called, who you have committed to, who you have, who have promised to bless the whole earth through. It is even us as we stand here today, as we gather here today as Abraham's offspring, receiving the promises first given to him. So we look to you and ask that through the preaching of your word this morning, that your name would be exalted, would be lifted up, that we would be a people who recognize, like Abraham, that you are worthy to be worshipped, to be trusted, and to put all of our faith in. So strengthen our faith this morning, 
It's in the name of Jesus alone that I pray. Amen. Have a seat. Well, today is Super Bowl Sunday, right? All right, yeah. Even, even if we do have to endure watching the New England Patriots once again in this game, at least it's a good excuse to uh, eat a bunch of junk food and get together with some friends. But uh, this is often, has become, in many ways, kind of a cultural holiday. You know, many who don't actually watch football will still gather today with family, with friends, and, uh, and sit down and, and enjoy this, this spectacle. And uh, this, this thing has become such a big event that it's, it's driven to cater to all different types of people. Whether you, whether you really enjoy football or not, that's why they have this big, you know, halftime show, this big concert at the middle that at least draws some people. And then one of the other things that people really enjoy about the Super Bowl that we anticipate is what? It's the commercials, right? Yeah, we get to watch the commercials. It's always interesting every year to just see what these marketing departments come up with. Something that's worth spending five plus million dollars on to just get a 30-minute clip. And uh, it's interesting to just see the ones that, that connect, the ones that are impactful, the ones that do well. You know, sometimes it's those that are, that are just really funny. They just play on something, they, they just come up with good humor, make us laugh. Other times it's the sentimental ones that just kind of, you know, pull on your heartstrings. But then uh, over the years, one thing I think I've noticed is that some of them that, are, that, are, that really connect, that actually do well, are those that are just, frankly, random or kind of take you off guard. They kind of surprise you, Right. And a, and a few years back, there was this, uh, this ad put out by Mountain Dew, and it's now been, been known as Puppy Monkey Baby. Anybody remember this one? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's frankly a very disturbing advertisement, right? It's, it's, it's awful. Um, I think I still have like nightmares from seeing this. Um, so if you haven't seen it, Google it at your own, at your own risk. Um, but it's this, this crazy scene where there's these three guys sitting on a couch, and uh, all of a sudden this creature comes like through this weird side door and uh, starts prancing around. And this, this, this thing is composed of a of, of part, part baby, part monkey, and part puppy. And so uh, it dances around and starts handing out Mountain Dew, ends up licking one of the guy's faces, and all the while saying and chanting, puppy, monkey, baby, puppy, monkey, baby. And then they all leave the room. Just this random, strange, just disturbing scene that we see. And what was crazy about it, it was, it was frankly a terrible commercial, but it was actually a brilliant marketing approach because the thing that made it work is that it just caught you off guard. It was so random. It was so strange, so, so unexpected that you're like, what did I just watch? And it ended up being, I think, the most viewed and most searched and most talked about commercial that year that it was released. They did a good job with, with that side of it, even though I don't want to ever see that thing again. <laughs> but today, later on in the end of chapter 14, when we get there, we're going to encounter a story that's kind of like that. A story that as we're reading along in this, in, in, throughout the book of Genesis kind of takes us by surprise, takes us off guard. This figure shows up who is unexpected, so random that it just catches our attention. It calls us to say, like, what? What was that all about? Who is this figure? Who is this one? We're going to get there as we trace through these couple chapters in Genesis. But as we start in Genesis 13, we are, we are continuing to follow the life of Abram, this one called by God who is learning to live by faith. You know, we all live by faith in some way, right? No matter what you believe, no matter what your value system is, there's an aspect of faith. None of us has perfect knowledge. So there's, there's an aspect of faith in everyone's life. 
And the question that I believe is presented in these, these couple chapters in this section of Genesis is, will we live by faith in our vision or faith in God's promises? And we see this pattern throughout the life of Abram and his descendants that faith in God's promises is the path to blessing while faith in our vision leads to struggle. And so we begin in chapter 13, and we see first and foremost, number one, a restored faith. We see this restored faith laid out at the beginning of chapter 13. It begins by describing Abram's journey back out of Egypt. Last week we saw how, his, how this father of the faith failed when he went down to Egypt, and fearing for his own life rather than trusting God to, to protect him and to watch over him, he, he ends up lying about uh, the relationship with his wife's. And ultimately ends up allowing her to be taken by the Pharaoh as his wife. But yet God is faithful to him. He's faithful to his promises even when we are faithless. And God preserves Abram and Sarai and they are sent out of Egypt. But not without even amassing a great deal of wealth, livestock, silver and gold as as they leave Egypt. And despite Abraham's foolish moves, God is still blessing him. And so we read then that Abraham comes out of Egypt into the Negev, or the southern desert area of Palestine. And it's no mere coincidence that this story sounds really very familiar to those who know their Old Testament. You know, this is, isn't this the same sequence that we read about later on in, in Exodus, where there's this famine that leads the nation of Israel into Egypt? They spend forever in slavery there, but God frees them, and He leads them out of Egypt back to the promised land of Canaan. So here early on, Abram's journey is prefiguring that pattern that will later be repeated by his descendants. And as Abram returns from Egypt, we see that he ends up back to the place between Bethel and Ai, where he was before in chapter 12, verse 8. It's the same place. He goes back where he had built an altar before. And so what I believe we, we have here, what the author is, is presenting is that, that here, again, it says that Abraham calls on the name of the Lord just as he had done before. So we have this expression of Abraham's repentance, a reaffirming of his faith in the promises of God. And it's just such, a, such a, an encouragement to us to see this pattern in Abraham's life, to see this pattern in, the, in his descendants' lives, that no matter how far we stray, no matter how far we go, no matter how, how deeply we have doubted the promises of God, God is still there waiting for us to call on His name in faith and worship. So where do you find yourself today? With God, your relationship with God. Do you, do you find yourself, maybe some here, who are just confused about what God is doing in your life and in the lives of others? Doesn't quite make sense. Maybe some are angry at God for what He has allowed to happen. Maybe some are just doubting God and His his goodness or His his faithfulness or even His ability to forgive you. And Abraham's life is a continual testament to us of God's faithfulness to extend mercy to sinners and to give grace to forgive rebels. But as Abraham shows us, we must repent and return and respond in faith and dependence to call on the name of the Lord And place our faith in Him. And we see this restored faith in the life of Abraham here at the beginning of chapter 13. But then the the, the story shifts rather abruptly to this earthly vision 
this earthly vision that is laid out. And in verse 6, the narrative moves to focus in on Abraham's nephew, Lot. Now, since Abraham has left on this journey all the way from, from Ur to Haran to the promised land, Lot has just been tagging along. And back in chapter 11, we're told that Lot's father, uh, Haran, had died while they were still living in Ur of the Chaldees. And so Abraham, being a good uncle, he, he takes his nephew under his wing and he brings him along with him. And as we will see over the next few chapters, this is likely a decision that Abram regrets over and over again, because Lot is constantly a pain in Abraham's backside. And it starts here where we see this first family property dispute. They're they're struggling over what to do with everything that they have amassed. And not only has Abraham accumulated all of this wealth, this livestock, gold and silver, even from Egypt, but also kind of riding on his coattails, Lot's done pretty well for himself as well. So he has, a, he has a livestock, he has a whole bunch of stuff, you know, that he's amassed as well. They've, they've both become wealthy, and it create, creates this problem. In verse 6, it says, So the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great. It's a great problem to have, right? Man, what do I do with all this stuff, all this wealth? Can't even, can't even live, can't even move around. But uh, they've done well. So what are they going to do? Uh, there's, there's conflict and fighting that's broken out between those taking care of, anim- of, of Abraham's animals and those taking care of Lot's animals. There's, there's conflict, strife over pastures and, and where they should graze. And so something has to give. Some, something has to be done. And they hit this impasse, but who goes where? How do they work this out? Well, Abram, being the elder, being the uncle, obviously he has the right to make this decision. But he unexpectedly offers the choice to Lot, and he says, hey, take your pick. You settle in whichever land you like, I'll go the other way, and we'll, we'll separate, and we'll, we'll make this work and kind of spread out. But he gives the choice to Lot. And I'm not certain, but I, but I bet at this point, Abraham is thinking that, that he tried to control things previously when he headed down to Egypt, and he's not going to do that again. He's going to trust God to take care of him, to lead him where he, should, where he should be. And he's going to trust God to take care of him and fulfill his promise. And I think there's also an aspect here where, where Lot is actually Abraham's heir apparent. Right? He is his closest living relative. He's going he's to inherit it and carry on Abraham's legacy in a sense. And at this point, Sarai is still barren, remember? She has no kids. Right now, Lot's set up to, t- to take it all. So, so Abraham, even, even you know, potentially leaving Lot, has the, still has this theme of him trusting that God's going to provide for him, that, that he's going to fulfill his promise of, of, of the seed. And so there's a, even an act of faith in Abraham being willing to, to separate from Lot. And then the text gives us what Lot's vision is. How does Lot respond to this generous proposal from his uncle? You know, this, hey, hey, why don't, why don't you choose? And what does he do? Well, it's kind of like my kids when dessert's brought out. It's like, I want that piece. I want the biggest piece. No, 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 you know, I want that one. No, I call that one. I want that one. You know, when it's vegetables, you know, they'll be like, hey, you go first. You, 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 you have it. You know, I'll, I'll go last. You bring out the dessert. And all of a sudden, they want to choose. They want that biggest piece that they can find, what they see. And Lot is similar. So he's like, oh, okay. Let me, let me see. Let me take my time here. Let me look out and see where I want to go. 
And it says that he lifted up his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley. It says that, and when he saw that, it was, it was, it was well watered. It was like the, like the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt, this desirous area. And I believe that, Lot, that the writer is intentionally presenting Lot as deciding, I am going to take what I believe is best for my interests. It says that Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley, and then it says this, that he journeyed east. And as I, as I, as I, as I begin to trace down this, this, this concept of, of, of heading east, it's really, it was really interesting to see how this develops all throughout the Scriptures. And this reference to the east is something that we are meant to notice. If you were a Jew reading this thousands of years ago or hearing this read over and over, you would begin to pick up on this repeated reference to the east. The pattern keeps showing up, indicating that this isn't merely just a directional reference, but there's something else being, being, being shown here. And we see this, this, first of all, going back to Genesis chapter 2, when we read that God planted a garden in the east... But then in chapter 3, when man and woman rebel against God, it says that they are, they are cast out of the garden to the east. Then in chapter 4, Cain, after killing his brother, goes, get this, away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Then in chapter 10, the descendants of Joktan settle in the lands to the east, And then it's in chapter 11, it's these people who, as they migrate east, establish and gather together to make a name for themselves and build the Tower of Babel. And here again, we see Lot move to the east to settle. And John Salehammer, in his commentary, said this about this this concept. He says, in the Genesis narrative, when man goes east, he leaves the land of blessing Eden in the promised land, and goes to a land where the greatest of his hopes will turn to ruin, Babylon and Sodom. So so you see what's going on? The direction of heading east is this movement away from God's presence, and and, and coming from the east is this return and back to this promised land, which is another reason why today we all need to be rooting against the New England Patriots. (laughs) Out in the east, it's like Babylon. But these are intentional references embedded in the narrative that paint these trajectories of life. On the one hand, they become symbolic of leaving God to make a name for ourselves or to find our own way, leading to the cities like Babylon and Sodom that embody wickedness, alienation, and exile. This is why when the, when the nation of Israel is, 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 is defeated and, and cast into exile, they are exiled to Babylon in the east. They leave the promised land. We even see it there. But it's life, hope, and salvation that come out of the east toward the promised land. And we can trace these patterns throughout the Bible as the the temple even faces east, as the star of the Magi rises in the east and leads the kings to Bethlehem. This theme is repeated over and over, and it's, it's giving these trajectories. So here, when Lot makes this choice to go towards the Jordan Valley, to the east, it's a marker to say, watch what happens here. This isn't going to end well. And it goes on to read that Lot settled in among the cities of the valley, and he pitched his tent as far as Sodom. 
Then verse 13 pops in and says, oh, by the way, side note, Sodom, that's not a good place. They were wicked and great sinners before the Lord. And he just kind of hangs that there, and that's going to become significant in a few chapters. But the writer is leading us on this progressive movement of Lot where he leaves Abram, the one to whom all these promises of blessing were given, and Lot pursues what his eyes determine will be best for him. And in chapter 14, we see suddenly that Lot is actually not just now living in or around the area of Sodom, but he actually is living in the city of Sodom. And in a couple weeks, we're going to get to chapters 18 and 19 where we see the rest of the decline of Lot. And we see what happens in, in, in his decline. But it starts here where he distances himself from the promises of God given to Abraham to pursue his own dreams. Abraham had these promises. Those who were with Abraham, to be with Abraham was to, was to be part of the blessing, to be part of these promises, to, to, to declare dependence on God and what he is doing through this one. But Lot sees this land that that's going to that's gonna be better for me. That's going to be what's really going to produce, you know, and, and me to make a name for myself, to accumulate more wealth, to be established, to, to, care, to take care of number one. Sure, Abraham offered this decision to him. So in some sense, it, it wasn't wrong for Lot to choose this land. But I think it's getting at what the, was the process through which he made this decision. What was guiding him in that? But for us, I think there's kind of a secondary application here that is just how do we evaluate the decisions that are offered to us in life? What sets our priorities and establishes the things that we give ourselves to? The things that we pursue? Who do you consider And what is the impact of them on you, on your family, on your community? It may seem like a good move, a good opportunity, a good endeavor, something worth giving yourself to, but do we ask at what cost? At what cost to our own spiritual health, to our own growth? At what cost to our family, to our marriages? At what cost to our friendships? At what cost to the mission of God? And life is filled with a thousand seemingly benign choices. And many of them may simply demand too high a price. And Lot will soon realize the truth found in Proverbs 13.20 that whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So the question is, what vision of faith guides us first and foremost? Our faith in the promises of God or our faith in our vision for what we see as best, what we think we need, and for what we desire? We see then that it shifts back to Abraham, and God takes Abraham, he shows him again all of this land, and he reaffirms his promise to deliver this to him and to his offspring forever. He restates his covenant promises, and Abraham settles in Hebron, which is going to be a key city throughout the Old Testament, and he again builds an altar to the Lord. Abraham will worship God in the land he has promised and rest on God's promises to him. And this this chapter contrasts the direction of both of these men. And then chapter 14 arrives, and we shift to to this this chapter that then pushes us to see this promise of a priest king. But it begins in in verses 1 through 16. In chapter 14, verses 1 through 16, we see this battle of the nine kings. It recounts this ancient battle that took place throughout eastern Canaan. 
The battle was between these nine kings, five kings against four kings. And we read, when, when we read kings and armies in these chapters, no, don't, don't be thinking of like the, you know, the Middle Ages of, of huge nations like France or England and these, these, these massive, well-trained, equipped armies. Think small ancient tribes, local rulers over, over small outposts and, and little cities, you know, a, a few thousand people here, a few thousand people there, you know, 50, 100, 100 men making up one army. It's, these, are, these are smaller things that are taking place. They're, they're, they're not necessarily trained armies, but small raiding parties. And verse 1 in chapter 14 is significant, where it begins by saying, Amraphel, king of Shinar. Now, what's interesting about this is it's significant because Amraphel is not the most significant king in this, in this story, right? This other, this other king, Kedarlaomer, is. But Amraphel is listed here first to, to be a marker for us. Because we, he's trying to let us know where these kings are from. We've seen Shinar before, right? In, uh, back in chapter 11. This is essentially the area of ancient Babylonia. This area that throughout Scripture symbolizes the world. So these are these eastern kings who are coming to battle and, and rule over kind of this area of eastern Canaan. And so it's telling us where these things are from, so that, that matters. The lead king, though, is this one named Kedarlaomer. And it appears he has the most power, the most influence within this. But he's allied with these other four eastern kings. And it says that these five Canaanite kings were kind of under his thumb. He kind of ruled over them. They were expected to pay tribute to him, a common kind of lordship, vassal relationship. And as long as they paid tribute, he wouldn't, you know, destroy them. He would, in a sense, offer protection for them as long as they paid tribute. And it says they kept doing this for 12 years. This was a common situation in these, these ancient areas where there was constantly the vie for power and one, one area trying to raise up against the other and constant fighting and, and all. But sometimes there was a season of peace based on you know, who was strongest and who would you know, kind of pay enough money to just kind of keep the peace. But these five Canaanite kings had had enough. They were sick of it. And so they said, you know, let's gather together and let's, let's rebel against this Kedarlaomer and his whole crew. And so we see in verses 5 to 10 describe the complete defeat of these five Canaanite kings. Apparently they weren't, weren't, weren't very good warriors. There was these tar pits and they ended up stumbling and falling in these tar pits and they get you know, scattered and run to the hills and they basically just get routed by these four eastern kings. And these guys, Kedarlaomer and his crew, they're strong, they're not to be messed with. They rule this area by force. And the purpose of recounting this story actually comes to light not until we get to verse uh, 12, where it tells us that Lot, Abraham's nephew, shows up again, who at this point is now actually settled in and living in the city of Sodom. Before, he just kind of pitched his tent outside in that area. Now he's actually living in Sodom. Just an interesting note. But he is captured by these kings as they come through and they, they take over Sodom. So he's captured, all of his stuff is taken, and Abraham hears about it. Somebody comes and says, hey, remember your, your nephew? Well, he's been captured. I don't, know, I don't know why, if it was me, I'd be like, oh, well, good luck to that guy. But Abram keeps seeing his, his nephew Lot as a thorn in his side, but yet still 
loves him. He still pursues him. And so he gathers 318 of his men in his house, so a pretty small group. And he takes off to try to rescue Lot. He tracks them down. He's tracking this army that's just defeated numerous areas and lands and cities. But he's trusting that he can go and rescue his nephew, Lot. And this is that pattern that we see throughout the history of Israel, that it doesn't matter the size of your army or how outnumbered you are, but what matters is the power of the God that you serve. And God allows Abraham to track down these invaders way up north. And he divides his army at night, he attacks them, and they have victory. They completely destroy these other armies. And he ends up rescuing his nephew Lot and his whole family. So we have this battle that happens, and Lot is rescued. And then it's at this point where the story just takes a random shift. This thing that stands out that's like, why is this here? What, are, what is the significance or purpose of this? So we read in chapter 14, verse 17, it says this, After his return from the defeat of Kedarlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we have this this strange account that happens. As Abraham is returning from this victory over these eastern kings... It says that he's then met by two other kings. The king of Sodom shows up, which makes sense, right? He had just rescued, he had just saved his neck, had rescued all of his people. Sodom had been, had been destroyed. Half his army had fallen in tar pits, and he, 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 Abraham comes and he, he rescues him. So Sodom comes out to, to thank Abraham, to recognize what he has done for him. It makes sense. But then there's this other guy. Verse 18 introduces this guy, Melchizedek. He is king of Salem. We haven't heard of this guy before. You know, anybody who's, who's important or listed, you know, has these long genealogies, where they're from, what their significance is. But this guy just comes out of nowhere. We haven't, we haven't heard of him. We haven't seen him at all. But he shows up. And there's a few details that are given. First, his name literally means king of righteousness. Melech, the Hebrew word for king, and Zedek for righteousness, king of righteousness is his name. He is also the king of Salem, which likely, potentially, becomes what later becomes known as the city of Salem or Jerusalem. So this guy is possibly the the king over Jerusalem at the time. And it says that he is priest of God most high which should be pretty shocking because it's saying that this guy is both a king and a priest. So for any Hebrew reading this, that would would be shocking. See, that doesn't happen. You can't be both. It's like puppy monkey baby. They might be cute on on themselves, but don't put them together. Kings are great. Priests are great. They, They don't go together. This was laid out in the Levitical law, right? Priests came from the line of Levi, kings came from the line of Judah. They didn't didn't cross over. But this guy shows up, and he's both. And look what happens. Melchizedek actually blesses Abraham. 
He recognizes all that God has done for Abraham. Gives, you know, this, this is a worshiper of God Most High. El Elyon, another reference to, to Yahweh. And this guy blesses Abraham in recognition of the God giving him the victory. And then Abraham, in response, gives 10%, gives us this tithe of everything that he has just retrieved from this battle to this guy. And this giving of a tithe is, a, is an obvious act of bestowing honor, of recognition, of even, even worship. So Melchizedek holds a place of priority over Abraham, and Abraham recognizes it. Then in contrast, we have the king of Sodom who shows up and says, hey, thank you so much, Abraham. Hey, why don't you take everything that you've gotten? Just give us back our people. You can take everything else and have it all. Thank you so much for rescuing us. And how does Abraham respond? Not by paying him a tenth, but actually by doing something very different, by almost disregarding him completely, almost insulting him by saying, actually, you know what? I don't want any of your stuff. Take all your stuff, leave it, just give some to, you know, the, these other, my, some of my allies, they can take what they want, but I don't want any of your stuff. And he says, for this reason, in verse 22, says, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. Abraham gets it at this point. He's saying, He's saying, you know, king of Sodom, I don't, I don't need your stuff. God will bless me. I don't want you or anybody else to think that you were the reason why I was blessed, why I became rich. That is going to be God's job to do. God has promised that to me. Very different response than he did to Melchizedek. And Abraham doesn't need Sodom's wealth. He doesn't need wealth from the world, but he recognizes that God will take care of him. But what do we make of this Melchizedek figure? It's interesting. We don't hear anything else about him. He just disappears, right? He's just gone. Doesn't show up again. In fact, we don't hear his name until it pops up much later in a little psalm by King David in Psalm 110. And this psalm is clearly recognized as a messianic psalm or a a psalm that prefigures or foreshadows the coming Messiah. And it starts by saying this, says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So just track with me on this psalm. David is writing the psalm and he says this, he says, the Lord or Yahweh, the one true God says to my Lord. So Yahweh says to David's Lord, this statement. So who is this other Lord that is referenced, that is being laid out here? Ultimately, he's going to be a powerful king as you read throughout the psalm. He's going to be one who rules with might, with power, who brings justice, who, who, who crushes those who oppose him. It's this powerful ruler is who this one is going to be, who has been placed and appointed by Yahweh. But it also says this, David writes, says, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, this Lord that he speaks of, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Hadn't heard about this guy forever. And David picks it up and makes this massive statement based on this guy. So what's going on? He's saying that the Messiah, when he comes, when this Lord comes, 
He will not be a priest like all the other priests that have followed in the line of Aaron, but he will be a priest like Melchizedek back in Genesis chapter 14. He will be a priest who is also a king. And this is exactly what the writer of the book of Hebrews picks up later on in the New Testament. And he unpacks this about Jesus. And we don't have time to walk through this, 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 this whole passage together. I wish we could. I wish we could take a few weeks and just unpack what's going on here in, in Hebrews 7 and 8. But I'd encourage you this week, read Psalm 110, read Hebrews 7 and 8 together and connect all these things together with what's going on in Genesis 14. It's all pointing us in this direction. It's all leading us to see Jesus. But at the end of Hebrews chapter 6, it says this. It says that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It's a reference to the inner sanctuary of the temple, the Holy of Holies, the only place where once a year the high priest could enter into. It says that we have this hope that's gone into there for us, behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. As a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus enters into the the, the temple for us, into the Holy of Holies, before the presence of God, not as a Levitical priest, but as a Melchizedekian priest. And chapter 7 then picks this up and even essentially quotes from Genesis 14 where it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. To him he apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, which is king of peace. He's without father, mother, genealogy. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Not that Melchizedek didn't have that, but it's not not listed for us. We don't have it, so it appears that he has no beginning, no end, no genealogy. He's something different altogether. But Jesus resembles the Son of God. He continues as a priest forever. The writer then in Hebrews 7 goes on to argue for the greatness of the one to whom Abraham has paid tithes. And then he goes on to describe how, how it's, the, it's the greater one who blesses the lesser. And it was, it was Melchizedek that bestowed blessing upon Abraham. He's tracking through this and building this case for the greatness, the superiority of, of this Melchizedekian priesthood. And then in Hebrews 7 verse 11, he says this. He says that if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood... You see, the priesthood was always already established when David wrote Psalm 110, right? It was already laid out, it was already ongoing, it was happening, it was regularly going. So he says, if perfection had been attained through that priesthood that was already established by the law, then what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? If we already had this priesthood that was going on, that was working just fine, why does David say we need another priest that's going to come after a different order? Come after Melchizedek. That's what what he's arguing in Hebrews 7. And what he's saying is that the need for a Melchizedekian priest declares that the Levitical priesthood is insufficient. It cannot save the people. It was only a temporary solution. It was pointing to something else. It was signifying that we needed something else. The writer goes on to say this, that in the arrival of this better priest... 
He says this, he says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. What's that former commandment? It's, it's that whole thing laying out the Levitical priesthood, all those things that established how the nation was to, was to be represented to God. He's saying on the one hand, when this new priest comes, that old commandment, that is set aside. But not only is it just done away with, but he says this, he says, it's set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness, for the law made no one perfect. The law couldn't, couldn't perfect anyone. Nobody could attain it. Nobody could, nobody could obey it. It was only a temporary situation pointing to something else. But then he says, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Verse 22 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. You see, the former priests, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. See, the Levitical priesthood had this big problem. All the priests who kept serving there, they kept dying. Somebody else had to step in, just kept dying over and over again. It was just this cycle that just had to go on forever if it was going to be sustained. But he, Jesus, when he shows up, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, then, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love Hebrews chapter 7. These amazing truths that are declared to us of the permanent, absolute, sufficient priesthood of Jesus that grants us a hope that is established because He is always there interceding for us. So from very, the very beginning in Genesis 14, the arrival of Melchizedek is saying to us that we need God to provide us a priest king. And this figure points us to the true Melchizedek. In a small way, Abraham is now even looking to the one to come, the one in whom all the promises given to Abraham will find their ultimate fulfillment. The one who is an eternal priest and a king. And Jesus has been given as our eternal priest who always intercedes on our behalf to the Father. So what does that mean for us? What do you do with this? It's cool to see these connections and see this, but not many of us are looking to priests to do anything for us, and so it's kind of this biblical language that's sometimes hard to connect with. What does this mean for us as we leave here? It means that when you struggle this week and you sin, just know that you have a Melchizedekian priest interceding for you. When you get angry and you yell at your kids... Jesus is a forever priest, always there before the Father, saying, I paid for that with my blood. When you feel discontent, when you covet other stuff, when you encounter lust that rises up in your heart, when you begin to doubt and, and stray from your Father, Jesus stands there as our priest, declaring that He covered it and paid for it, for all time with his sacrifice. He is our forever priest. He is our eternal king. The coming of Melchizedek is good news for us. And we see all throughout 
the book of Genesis, everything pointing us to look to our Savior, to look to this Messiah that would come. Do you rest free from guilt because Jesus always intercedes on your behalf? Do you own your sin, your failures, because Jesus has paid for it and then calls us to turn and run from it, to return back to Him? The promise of Jesus as our Melchizedekian priest gives us that freedom. So as we close, you know, as we, as we saw in Genesis 13, verse 10, it tells us that Lot lifted up his eyes. Then later on in verse 14, it tells us that Abraham lifted up his eyes as well. Both of these men saw different lands. And one moves forward with faith in what his vision provided for him, what he saw that he thought he desired and what he needed. And the other one moved forward in faith in the promises of God given to him. Promise ultimately leading to a priest that would stand forever before the Father and declare him righteous because he had faith. So will we today walk by our vision and like Lot run down a path that leads to destruction and struggle and difficulty or will we rest in the promises of God and like Abraham, will we have faith in our priest and our good king who wants to rule over our lives in kindness and grace? Let's pray to this God who has loved us and given us this eternal priest. Father, we look to you. We thank you so much for this obscure random figure in the Old Testament that stands out to us as we see as this, this one that's pointing to your desire to cover our sins, to atone for our sins. And in the person of Jesus, we have this reality made clear. I pray that we would look to him, that we would cast all of our burdens upon him, knowing that he has paid for it all, that he always stands before you, covering us with his righteousness. And let us be a people who stand confidently under the righteousness and the sacrifice of Jesus. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior. Amen.